Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we may have to dig deep. We may have to open our eyes to a new perspective. And we may have to reserve judgment until we've completed our exploration because we're finding gratitude even when we don't feel grateful. Let's be honest. I'm not thrilled every second of the day. Over the last year, season, month, and day, I've been disappointed, let down, and frustrated feeling anything but thankful. When you're sinking in the bog of displeasure, it's difficult to count your lucky stars. Don't you question the whole gratitude practice, at least from time to time? Well, friend, you're not alone. Don't beat yourself up. Instead, we're going to rise above this disillusionment and bring the bigger picture into focus because, yes, right out of the gate, there are thankful elements to even the most distressing times. Ready to pick out a more positive vantage point? So, to get us started, I looked up the definition for gratitude and grateful. The quality of being thankful, readiness to show appreciation for and to return kindness, feeling or showing an appreciation of kindness, thankful. Now that's more like it, showing appreciation and kindness. Shouldn't that be part of our everyday practice? I'm not sure if it's just me, but the whole gratitude movement has made finding gratitude seem like a huge event and that you have to experience this before you can even start your day on the right foot. If you can't get there emotionally, then your entire day shall be doomed. Push out all the negative feelings and only embrace the positive ones. Don't you dare get out of that bed until you purge your bad and find five reasons to smile today. Now, don't get me wrong. All these are good things. I love taking negative thoughts and reframing them to find the good. But with anything, a slight twist of perception and the good intent can be thrown completely off. You will have bad thoughts. You will roll your eyes, grumble, and possibly growl. You stub your foot and you'll likely scream and potentially curse. When you are asked to stay late or give up a fun weekend, you will feel salty. You're human. Finding gratitude doesn't mean that you can't be human. With everything we strive for, we should be striving for balance. Counterbalance your negative with a healthy dose of positive. Before your low mood takes you down, find a positive to give you a hand up. So yes, We should be looking for things in our lives to be thankful for. We should embody this feeling of appreciation and show kindness to others. Help them find their gratitude. But that won't stop yucky things from happening and the feeling of getting the short end of the stick from time to time. Horowitz shares the benefits and limits of today's gratitude movement in an article for the Washington Post. 
America has a gratitude problem. Dozens of popular books and articles urge us to embrace the power of gratitude. And readers are eager to comply. One of the top-selling self-help books on Amazon is The Unblinded Good Days Start with Gratitude, a 52-week guide to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Yet, many will naturally feel excluded from the increasingly prevalent gratitude equation in which a mindset of thankfulness is supposed to multiply one's blessings. People who lost everything in wildfires, relatives and victims of mass shootings, and those suffering from physical or emotional disorders can understandably feel locked out of the reported benefits of compounded gratefulness. Feeling the peer pressure to be grateful can even create a kind of negative loop. When we can't summon the expected feelings of gratefulness or buoyancy that popular culture demands, we often experience a deepened sense of failure. It's not that the urge toward gratefulness is wrong. It's that the popularly expressed approach needs to consider the vast number of people who have unjustly or chronically suffered. None of this gratitude evangelizing is new. Most people credit Oprah Winfrey with the ever-present term, Attitude of Gratitude. But the slogan and its outlook originated in a 1909 book called The Ideal Made Real by American mystic Christian D. Larson. He wrote, The attitude of gratitude brings the whole mind into more perfect and more harmonious relations with all the laws and the powers of life. The grateful mind gains a firmer hold, so to speak, upon those things in life that can produce increase. Horowitz names many, many books on gratitude. For instance, Janice Kaplan's The Gratitude Diaries, or maybe for more serious seekers, Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. That was from historian Diana Butler Bass. There's also a pleasingly offbeat, a simple act of gratitude, How Learning to Say Thank You Has Changed My Life, by author John Kralik. Opting for more explicitly religious perspective, Nancy Lee DeMoss, Choosing Gratitude, Your Journey to Joy. Maybe venturing outside the immediate gratitude genre, there's Gretchen Rubin's The Happiness Project, or Why I Spent a Year Trying to Sing in the Morning, Clean My Closets, Fight Right, Read Aristotle, and Generally Have More Fun. Hmm. <laughs> Does this mean that the gratitude apostles are wrong? No, it doesn't. They frequently offer serviceable insight. Where the gratitude movement falters, as with the positivity movement in general, is that it must acknowledge that there's no way to spin profound personal loss. Life may never be whole again. Horowitz believes that the closest thing that we're granted to an elixir after experiencing grief or while facing profound challenge is not only the cultivation of a grittier form of gratitude, but also fighting the very ills, large and small, that contributed to the suffering or structural frictions that you and others must experience. So yes, two cheers for gratitude, but we need a movement today that recognizes the true possibilities and the limits of gratefulness for all people. 
I really feel like gratitude is difficult because at certain times of your life, it's hard to see the bigger picture. It's hard to rise above your current situation to see how this challenge might play out and how you could benefit from it. In the present, you're too busy slugging it out to pause and reflect, or at least it feels that way. I've had my fair share of trials and tribulations, heartaches and disappointments. There are many times in my life that I might have felt regret and guilt, making it difficult to be thankful for those times. But once I rounded the corner, I was in a different time and space with a chance to look back on why me or why not me. Even though today I can see the blessing and the blessing in most of the things I've gone through, and if not, I've been able to let them go and move on. I don't feel personally hung up on any one event in my life, and I'm in a place to celebrate my growth. Doesn't mean I'm done and that new lessons are not getting ready to be served. Oh, they're coming. But I'll be ready because I'm moving through this journey, embracing the challenges, working through the negative emotions, finding appreciation in the moment, sharing the experience with kindness. But heck, I don't have all the answers. Dr. Summer Allen tells us why is gratitude so hard for some people in an article she wrote for Greater Good Magazine. If you have trouble with gratitude, you're not alone. Luckily, there's something you can do about it. There are many benefits to being grateful. Gratitude is good for your psychological well-being, your relationships, and possibly even your physical health. But the truth is that some people have more grateful dispositions than others. For some of us, gratitude just doesn't come easy. Research suggests that these differences may be rooted in our brains, genes, and even our personalities. But if you're having trouble feeling grateful, don't despair. Gratitude isn't purely hardwired. And as we'll explore, there are things you can do to bring more gratitude into your life. Number one, your grateful genes. Genetics may help explain why some people find it easier to feel and express gratitude than others. Perhaps the strongest evidence supporting this genetic basis for gratitude comes from a study of twins. In this study by Michael Steger and colleagues, identical twins who essentially have the same DNA had more similar self-reported levels of gratitude than did fraternal twins who share only 50% of their DNA, suggesting that there may be a genetic component to gratitude. Other studies have explored what specific genes may underline a person's grateful or less than grateful disposition. One promising candidate is a gene CD38, involved in the secretion of the neuropeptide oxytocin. A study by Sarah Algo and colleagues found The differences in this gene were significantly associated with the quality and frequency of expressions of gratitude towards a romantic partner in both the lab and in regular day life. In one part of the study, for example, members of heterosexual romantic couples noted whether I thanked my partner for something he or she did that I appreciated. Every night for two weeks they did this. Partners with one particular variant of the CD38 gene reported thanking their partners about 45% of the days, 
Whereas partners with another variant think their partners more than 70% of the days. That's a difference of about three and a half days without expressions of gratitude in some couples. Another gene that appears to influence gratitude is the gene called COMT, which is involved in the recycling of the neurotransmitter dopamine in the brain. A recent study by Jinting Li and colleagues found that people with one version of this gene reported experiencing more gratitude, while people with another version reported feeling less grateful. While the less grateful version of the COMT gene isn't all bad, there's evidence it has advantages for memory and attention. The results reported by Liu and colleagues suggest that this gene variant may also predispose people to be not only less sensitive to positive life events, but also super sensitive to negative life events. These individuals may gradually form over the developmental course of life a habit of neglecting the positive aspects of life events and complaining about misfortunes, resulting in decreased positive personality traits, such as gratitude and forgiveness. It's important to note two things about these studies. First, they can't tell us anything about how an individual person with a particular gene would act or behave on any given day. It isn't as if everyone with one version is walking around constantly feeling blessed, while people with the other version are total ingrates. And second, the genes I've just discussed are only two out of the possibly hundreds or thousands of genes that could be involved in how we experience a complex emotion like gratitude. Besides all the other social factors like religion and culture, they also have something to do with it. Emotions are complicated things. These results do suggest, however, that genes may contribute to a person's tendency to be more or less prone to seeing the world through grateful eyes. Number two, your grateful or less grateful brain. Research suggests there may be differences in the brain structure and activity between more and less grateful people. Although we can't say for sure if those differences are the result of nature or nurture, or some interaction between the two. So, for example, some parts of the brain might be anatomically different in more grateful people. One study found that people who are more prone to gratitude have more gray matter in their right inferior temporal cortex, an area previously linked to interpreting the other person's attentions. Brains of more and less grateful people also show activity differences. In a 2015 functional magnetic resonance imaging study by Glenn Fox and colleagues, participants were asked to imagine they were Holocaust survivors who had received shelter or food from strangers. The participants who imagined that they would feel more grateful in these scenarios had more activity in brain regions associated with more cognition, perspective taking, and reward. And in another study by Joel Wong, Joshua Brown, and colleagues, people who expressed more gratitude in lab setting as measured by their willingness to give to charity more of the money that they had received from doing an experiment 
had more active areas of the brain associated with making mental calculations. It may even be the case that more grateful people have more altruistic brains as well. A recent study by Christina Carnes and colleagues found that more grateful people had more activity in brain areas associated with the feelings of reward when they were told that a charity would receive money. Hmm. These studies suggest that differences in structure and activity across various brain regions may relate to differences in gratitude across individuals. At least some of these differences are not static. In fact, constantly making an effort to be grateful can physically change our brains over the long run. Number three, personality pitfalls. Our genes and our brains aren't the end of the story. Certain personality factors can also act as barriers to gratitude. In particular, envy, materialism, narcissism, and cynicism can be thought of as thieves of thankfulness. Envy and materialism both involve dwelling on what we do not have, so it should come as no surprise that these emotions may be contradictory to gratitude. It may be difficult or even impossible for people to be both grateful and envious or materialistic at the same time. Work by Joanna Song and colleagues has explored the relationships among these three emotions. For example, a 2002 study by Song with colleagues Michael McCullough and Robert Emmons found that people who self-reported a low tendency toward materialism and envy also reported being more grateful. Another study by Sung and colleagues took a closer look at the negative relationship between materialism and life satisfaction. This study found that lower life satisfaction among materialistic people could be explained by the fact that they reported lower levels of gratitude. The researchers sum it up this way. Materialists are less happy in part because they find it harder to be grateful for what they have. Narcissism appears to be another potent inhibitor of gratitude. A study by Lisa Farrell and Ruth Woolwind Lloyd illustrates this relationship well. In that study, participants were told that their results on a test were combined with those of an anonymous partner and that their composite score was better than 85% of other groups. More narcissistic people reported feeling less grateful towards their partners than did less narcissistic people. Narcissism, materialism, and envy may even cause people's gratitude to degrade over time. A 2017 study by Rebecca Solom, Phil Watkins, and colleagues found that undergraduate students with higher levels of narcissism along with cynicism, materialism, and envy, at the beginning of the study were less grateful two months later, even after controlling for their gratitude levels at the beginning of the study. Why might narcissism have this negative association with gratitude? One possibility is entitlement. Individuals high in narcissism may not even notice that a gift has occurred because they believe they are entitled to the benefit. So, how can we build our gratitude muscle? While there's evidence that gratitude activities may work better for some people than others, research suggests that there are exercises you can do, 
like gratitude journaling or gratitude letters that will build your gratitude muscle. A 2017 analysis of 38 gratitude studies concluded that gratitude interventions can have positive benefits for people in terms of well-being, happiness, life satisfaction, grateful mood, grateful disposition, and positive effect. And they can result in decrease in depressive symptoms. Now, wouldn't that be great? Excitingly, there's even some evidence from neuroscience that suggests how practicing gratitude can change your brain. Remember that study from earlier that looked at a brain activity, differences in people who express more and less gratitude? Another part of that study found that participants who had written gratitude letters in a therapeutic intervention expressed more gratitude and had more activity three months later in their brain. This result suggests that a simple gratitude intervention can lead to lasting brain changes even months after the intervention ends. The researchers propose an interesting interpretation of their findings. Practicing gratitude may increase brain activity related to predicting how our actions affect other people. To the extent one predicts and evaluates the likely effects of one's actions on others, one might be willing to direct those actions towards having a positive impact on others. And the recent study that found more grateful people have more altruistic brains? That relationship too appears to be malleable. It was stronger in participants who had been assigned to keep a gratitude journal for three weeks than it was in participants who had been assigned a different non-gratitude journaling activity. This difference suggests that people practicing gratitude changes the brain in a way that orients people to feel more rewarded when other people benefit. And this change could help explain why gratitude encourages generosity towards others. Gratitude might feel harder and maybe just less natural for some of us. The good news is that research suggests we may be able to actually train ourselves to become more grateful. And that's something we can all be grateful for. I love having a new exercise routine on the horizon. It makes me feel so productive. I'm going to build my gratitude muscle. And before you Google how many calories does one burn when building the gratitude muscle, stop. Of course, I already did, and the answer is zero. Well, it's actually less than zero since I'm probably the only person on the planet that actually typed that into a search. But in all fairness, I'm always looking for added benefits for anything that I do. So the payoff isn't weight loss or tight abs. The benefit is quickly shifting your thinking and elevating your mood. I do an exercise with the women in rehab that includes journaling and visualization. It is to write down one to three events that have happened in your life that brought you joy. Now, this could be something you're particularly proud of, something you love, something that created excitement or just a warm and fuzzy feeling. Now, for each event, add as many details as you can remember from what the day was like, how did you feel, even as granular as your face hurt from smiling or you hugged so hard you just couldn't let go. 
The more details, the easier it is to transport yourself back to this moment and relive that joyous feeling. That feeling will deliver a healthy dose of happy chemicals into your brain. When you're in a dark place, feeling low or angry and frustrated, it's hard to conjure up these feelings and much easier to grab a drink or a substance to quickly do the trick. Instead, refer back to your journal, pick out one of these events, and transport yourself to a happier place and time. Help yourself naturally feel better. Sarah Steckler tells us why she no longer focuses on gratitude lists or being more positive in her blog, Mindful Productivity. Gratitude lists are everything right now. Feeling blue? Write down three things you're grateful for. Really upset about something? Focus on the positive in everything you do. Research studies like this one have even proved that we can rewire our brains by thinking more positive thoughts. Sarah said, like most people, I've been through a slew of ups and downs, horrible experiences, terrible times, really low lows, and some really high highs. But I've noticed something about the way others treat me through all of these and how we react to others when they aren't being positive, grateful, and spreading love and light all over social media. We seem to have this visceral reaction to negative things. So much so that websites and even news organizations have devoted themselves to good and positive-only stories. This isn't a bad thing, especially when mainstream media and news can tend to err on the side of doomsday stories. We all need a little reminder that the humanity side of things still exists, and that not everything is going completely wrong. The issue is that we've taken a full swing into a dangerous territory. There's a sense of safety and comfort in only listening to good, focusing on positive, and quite frankly, avoiding the negative, and sometimes even avoiding the reality of things. And chances are that you've experienced this or been part of the problem. Don't worry, I have too. Post anything positive and in line with what mainstream happiness might look like or feel like, and the likes will pour in. Get real with something, express frustration, and people get uncomfortable. In fact, we get so uncomfortable with other people's negativity that we start shaming them in indirect ways. We say things like, look on the bright side. This won't matter in five years, so don't worry about it now. You should be more positive. You really have nothing to complain about. Be grateful for what you have. All of these comments tend to come from a good place. But for a moment, let's examine the root of where they exist. They are ego-driven, meaning we typically want other people to feel better, not because of their situation, but more often because their negativity or the ways in which they're sharing their personal experiences is uncomfortable to us. Here's the thing about human emotions. They exist, and one isn't any better than the other. Also, all of them are fleeting. So saying things like happiness is a choice is silly in a lot of ways because the choice often results in the denial of other emotions that are present. 
It's a lot like saying holding your breath is a choice. You can hold your breath right now, anytime really. When you're sad, when you hear something you don't like, when you stub your toe, when someone dies. It's always your choice to do so, but you're also cutting off your oxygen supply, and you can't do that forever. There are some great ways to reframe things, and gratitude plays an important role in creating more sustainable happiness in our lives. But if it's done in a way that excludes all the other endless human emotions and experiences, you're doing yourself a disservice. It's really hard to run while holding your breath, and it's really hard to move through grief, adapt to change, and work through frustration if you try to sugarcoat it with striving to choose happiness over giving yourself permission to feel various emotions, thoughts, and feelings. True happiness isn't the act of choosing to be happy. It's the art and allowance of accepting human emotions, observing them, and being okay with them being a part of our lives. Emotions are beautiful signs and signals from our bodies and minds. They let us know when boundaries are being pushed that we didn't know existed. They alert us to pain that still needs to be taken care of, soothed, and mended. They remind us that suffering and sadness are just as much a part of existing as joy, compassion, and love. So here are some major myths and assumptions we make all the time. Myth number one, if you have something good, you can't have something bad. Just because you have things to be grateful for doesn't mean you can't have things that feel off, upsetting, uncomfortable, or not aligned with what you truly want. Myth number two, if you have something that someone else doesn't, you should never complain. Sarah says, After losing my dad, I had people apologize to me when they'd complain or mention their alcoholic father or the lack of relationship with their dad. They'd say things like, crap, I'm sorry, here I am complaining about my dad and he's still alive. I would say, just because your dad is still alive doesn't mean you can't express grief from your relationship with him and it doesn't mean your feelings aren't valid. Myth number three. The best way to feel better is to focus on the positive. While there are solid and scientifically founded ways of creating neural pathways in the brain that habitually lead toward the positive, the only way out of things is through them. Your broken leg won't heal by merely wishing it to do so. Although, maybe a bit faster, who knows? Incorporating the positive can definitely boost your experience, but focusing on the positive and ignoring the rest takes away the experience of learning how to cope, adapt, and improve on handling difficult emotional circumstances. Myth number four. If you're not happy, something is wrong with you. There's such a big push for happiness these days. Endless books on how to be happier, how to be a certain percentage happier, how to be happier in different locations. And while I won't discredit the merit within those books and that many of those things do in fact help and improve your life, 
it can start to make you feel like there's something wrong with you if you're not happy. How often do you hear yourself saying, I just feel so off. I don't know what's wrong with me. Here's a hint. Nothing is wrong with you. You're a human being. Who's a human being feeling and experiencing? But I'm guilty of this too. We assume that feeling upset, irritable, aggravated, or less than stellar means we're doing something wrong. I have so much to be grateful for. How in the world could I ever feel anything but happy? Yet we don't ask ourselves the same questions for other emotions. I'm not angry today. What's wrong with me? I'm not crying right now. What did I do? Striving for endless happiness will in fact make you more unhappy. Isn't that a strange thing to say? But being in denial that other emotions and human experiences exist will make you endlessly miserable. So here's myth number five. If you're not happy, you're choosing it. I really don't know if there's a sentiment I hate more than choose happiness. Of course, this comes from Sarah. It sounds so easy, so fluffy, and so naive. I'm sure people will disagree with me. I know there are ways to manifest abundance and happiness. But if you think for one moment that if you're not happy, it's your choice, you're forgetting about the fact that the world also does happen to you. And yes, I'm pushing back on this. I've read endless books about how the universe is always happening for us. Shifting your perspective can make a huge difference, and I truly believe I've manifested many things in my life. However, a lot of people take this to another extreme, where they think that if anything bad happens, it's their fault, or that they attracted it. Self-fulfilling prophecy is a lot different than tragedy, psychopaths, and circumstances that flat out suck. (laughs) In other words, thinking you can't do something and then trying is a way of attracting a result or lack of one, whereas someone being a butt or hitting your car is a circumstance and an event. We cannot choose our emotions. They happen. What we can choose is how we react to them. So in a nutshell, you cannot choose happiness, but you can choose how you react to emotions that lead to a more fulfilling life. So like Sarah, I definitely want to echo that. You may not be able to just snap your finger and choose happiness, but when you find yourself in a depressive state, you can choose to reach out for help, to talk to someone, to research, to get involved. That is, in fact, choosing happiness. Myth number six. If it won't matter in five years from now, it shouldn't matter now. Sarah says, I've started saying this more lately and then realized how crappy it can sound on the other end. There are definitely things that don't need to be complained about. Small things, things you can choose to let go of that don't involve ignoring signals from your psyche. Like some jerk cutting off you off in traffic. But then there are things that in the present moment really do stink and that require time to process. That sometimes means sharing that experience and that become a lot more difficult when others tell us we shouldn't be feeling it or expressing it. 
This act, by the way, of telling others to be more positive or think about how they attracted something, (laughs) or my all-time favorite, I'm so sorry for your loss, but they're in a better place now, is called light washing or whitewashing negative thoughts. It's a way of victim blaming, especially when people are going through heavy emotions, tragic events, or they just need time to process. You might have heard things like, fear doesn't serve us, when really it actually does. So does guilt, anger, resentment, and so forth. The key is knowing how to observe them, how long to stay with them, and learning how to navigate them instead of letting them take over the steering wheel. So what should you do instead of endless gratitude lists? Well, you can try to still write things down that you're grateful for and reframe the negative things. But instead of sugarcoating them with positivity or ignoring the difficult things, get real with the reality of all of them. Number one, write a whatever list. Sometimes these lists get really long. List out things that really bother you, things you can't seem to get unangry about, things you wish you could change, things you don't like about your current situation, maybe a new place of residence or how you're being treated. Go wild. No apologies. No worry over feeling guilty about being so negative. Just let it all out. Then number two, cross off things you can immediately let go of after acknowledging them. After going through this process, you should feel lighter, more at ease. And after a few minutes of huffing and puffing, you'll have a solid awareness of what you can really let go of and what really doesn't matter. In other words, things you don't have to give a whatever about or give any more mental energy to. Number three, highlight the things that really still bug you. Some things aren't so easy to let go of, so highlight these. And number four, make a sublist of what you can do about the things that stick. From here, take the top three things that are really teeing you off and write down ways you can feel better or things you can do to take action towards improving them. This does a few things. It puts you back in a state of empowerment. It gives you the power of choice and decisiveness, which reduces overwhelm. And it shows you what's possible and takes away most feelings of defeat or helplessness. Tomorrow, when you wake up, take a moment and feel your emotions instead of being quick to dismiss them as you wake up your gratitude muscle. Look for ways to appreciate yourself as you focus on sharing kindness with others. These acts will lead away to feeling grateful. to share encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they are not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, feeling grateful and less than grateful are both human emotions, so give yourself a break. 
Take action to understand your feelings while exercising your gratitude muscle. Making it a daily practice takes time and should be at your own pace instead of handed to you. No cliches here, but you got this. And I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Someone through until the path was clear. That's when I found you. How I